Good evening. On this week's programme, chronicling the history of 32 Irish counties. We'll hear from William Nolan, who spent decades building a unique library of county histories, the History and Society series. Also, echoes of a buried past, the Irish in Leadville. And then I, I couldn't believe my eyes when I looked down and realised that all the furrows and the holes surrounding me were graves and they stretched as far as I could see in every direction. It washed over me that these are the people I've been researching for years. Jim Walsh on the story of Irish silver miners in 19th century America, their fight for a fair wage and why it's important to remember this chapter of Irish American labour history. In 1985, Geography Publications, an Irish publishing company, began a remarkable new venture, its History and Society series, with the goal of assembling a library of county histories for all of Ireland. Now, 38 years and 28 counties later, the History and Society series has become a much-loved and widely sought-after addition to bookshelves in Ireland and abroad. Each volume of the series incorporates the work of a wide range of authors from differing backgrounds, historians, geologists, geographers, archaeologists, linguists, folklorists, poets, novelists and more besides. To learn about the series, I am joined by William Nolan, formerly of the Geography Department of University College Dublin, who is the series editor and founder of Geography Publications, and Dr Arlene Cramsey, lecturer and assistant professor in UCD's School of Geography. Arlene is also joint editor of one of the more recent volumes in the series, Meath History and Society, which came out in 2015. William and Arlene, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Um, William, as series editor, you have overseen every edition. Tell us about tell us about your own background, uh, first of all. Yeah, well, I'm a, a native of uh, Tipperary, and I went to school in Tull, CBS. And I think we probably had good interest in history and good history teachers, and more particularly, I suppose, good geography teachers. So, as I say, I took up geography after my leaving cert. Uh, I, I enrolled in... University College Dublin. And I suppose I was very fortunate there to have the influence of Professor Tom Jones-Hughes, who had been trained in Aberystwyth. And he really was the founder of geography in what we call the Irish Republic. At the same time, S. Nevins, another Welshman, was the founder of geography in Queen's. And they made an enormous emphasis on the place dimension, obviously, in geography. And particularly the geography of the French, like Vidal de la Blache and people like these, who consistently talked about the personality of places. And we were coming completely new to this. We knew we had a place and we knew it was significant and all that. But nobody had told us from outside the place that it had been or was of importance and that it was of importance that we should look at it and talk about it. I remember Tom Jones-Hughes saying that the best dissertations he they had written for him were those written about uh, the students, their mothers' dresses. And I couldn't really see the relevance of this until something later. And then he was the only lecturer on UCD. He made a lot of Irish lectures in history, obviously, and all of that. He was the only lecturer to mention things like the Tipperary Star and the Nina Guardian newspapers and local newspapers. So I think he was an enormous influence. And at that time, you had the regional dimension in geography. Every place was divided up into regions. 
even small townlands even you could have your own regions some people said that it was bad drawn lines that did not matter about places that did not exist but again it was a nice academic exercise but I think it gave us that interest and then there was at that time in geography a dissertation in third year which was compulsory for people doing the honours degree and I did a dissertation on Tipperary very general one now and I look back on it and I was bringing all these teams from American geographers and English geographers, you know, trying to write about Tipperary in their uh, sense. But from that on, anyway, it developed. And I did um, my PhD was on the barony of Fasadine in North Kilkenny, a uh, coal mining farming area. And subsequently then that kind of developed an interest in all that. And I published that book in, I think, 1979, the book on North Kilkenny. And subsequently, then the whole series developed. And the way it happened was, in Tipperary had no historical society, no county historical society. There was a number of local historical societies. And a group of us came together, Dr. Tom McGrath and myself and a few more, and we developed the Tipperary Historical Society. And from that, then, we decided to write a book on Tipperary, a collection of essays on Tipperary. And it was to coincide with the centenary of the GAA in 1984. And we founded in Thurles, obviously, founded in, in Thurles. 1884. And here we were, it's going to be very successful commercially and career wise for us all if we got this book out in 1984 to coincide with the, the centenary. And of, of course, the you didn't. And then the All Ireland final was being held in, in Thurles that year between Cork and Offaly. Not a great All Ireland final, I must say, but anyway, Cork <laughs> won it fairly easily. And um, the book didn't come out, obviously, in 1984, which was a lesson. Of course not. <laughs> You're an academic. Missing deadlines is part we of academia. We missed academic. deadlines and it came out though in uh, September 85 and we launched it in Holy Cross. Uh, Dr Tom Morris, the Archbishop of Cashel, who was very interested himself in local history, uh, local and, studies. And geography publications itself, was that, was that something initially confined to your to your kitchen or your front room? Oh, it's or? still confined to my kitchen and front room. <laughs> well, we, never, we, we never developed... <laughs> We're a very uh, small... We sat myself and my wife, basically, Teresa. You know, she does a lot of the, the posting and the packaging and all of that kind of thing. And How did it then develop over the over the subsequent years? Well, it, it developed like... Uh, it's like I, I always say, it's like uh, going to a wedding is the making of another. You go to a launch and you meet people there. And I mean, at the Tipperary launch, I met people like uh, the late John Bradley. And we started talking about maybe we should do now a book. We hadn't any plan at that stage to do... Any county is only contemporary. But then we just said, uh, maybe we should do Kilkenny. And then Kevin Whedon, who was involved with me at that stage, said, maybe we should start again. We should do Wexford. So Wexford was the next one, and then Kilkenny. And basically, we, we kind of focused on the southeast in the earlier periods. And one led to another and all of that. And like some of the contributors for Tipperary were also contributors to Kilkenny and to Wexford. So we were very lucky. I think the credibility of the series was laid down in the beginning by the Tipperary book, Kilkenny book and the Wexford book, there were some fine scholars. Some of them have gone now, passed away, but there were tremendous scholars. And I've been very fortunate all the time that they have kind of all written voluntarily for the series, some of the best scholars in Ireland, I think. And you extended it to Northern Ireland as well. Yeah, we did in, in, in the 1980s and 1990s. Yeah, and we've all the counties in Northern Ireland covered now, apart from uh, Antrim, which is ongoing and which will be published next year. And I found that, well, it was a great learning experience for myself. It probably was a little bit uh, more difficult, obviously, with the, the, the you know, dealing with two countries as distinct from the Republic itself, you know, and 
established networks there and all would have been more difficult. But I think we did a fairly good job and we have a good mix of writers. writers. Uh, yeah, and the important thing is that they're not... Well, two important things. One is they're not all academic uh, academics and the other one is they're not all historians. Yeah, well, we've we done that from the very beginning. Like the first essay we published in the Prairie Book was an essay by Nicholas Manstra on the local dimensions of history. And in that, he pointed out that the Tipperary book was unique, he said, because it had contributions from archaeologists, geomorphologists, uh, geographers, folklorists, and along with historians and English scholars, English literary scholars. So I thought from the beginning, and I think that's where the geography background has been helpful, that kind of bringing everyone, as it were, together. And I suppose one of the things which inspired it too was the fact I knew from my days in UCD there were so many PhD theses and MA theses lying there dormant you know, without any... And these things, people had given their life's work to them, maybe. Sometimes it's the only thing they do, really, an MA thesis or a, mm. a PhD thesis. I said, it's important we get them out. Unless and, you do an MA thesis in Maynooth, in which case you'll get... In history, you'll get published. Uh, but that's that's, that, that's, that's another local, series. That's uh, Raymond Gillespie's project. Yeah, Indeed. that's another similar kind of thing mm. on a different scale. Um, just Arlene, as the editor of the co-editor of the Meath volume with with Francis Ludlow, just tell me a little bit about what goes into the detail of an individual volume. William obviously is has has an overview of uh, all of the volumes and a particular interest in in Tipperary. But in, in your case, what did you have to do? How did you go about it? Yeah, I think we started with trying to figure out what the scope of the volume was going to be. So what were, you know, if, if Meath was the focus, what were the key things that we wanted to make sure were included in the volume? What we thought were important aspects of the county's history to have there within the volume and, and covered. And then trying to figure out, I suppose, who was working in those areas across County Meath that we could speak to and see if they'd be willing to engage within that process. So the first bit, that kind of planning bit was more of a taking a holistic view of the county, thinking about what we knew about it, talking to other people who knew better uh, and asking questions about what the coverage should be uh, and then beginning to try and put that together. But Willie uh, undersells his own involvement uh, in the kind of as series editor. We were very glad to have his expertise and oversight as we were working on the volume and to understand what had happened in previous volumes. And it's a learning process, obviously. Each one builds on what's gone before. So there were things that, you know, the County History and Society series have to have, that kind of the coverage over a long time period, the interdisciplinary material um, from across the the scope of scholarship within the county. Um, I think we were very glad to kind of have that learning that had gone before it there within the volume as we began to put it together. And you weren't concerned, obviously anybody listening to you will uh, will know that you are not from County Meath. No, I am a proud Donegal woman. <laughs> um, so that, that was not of any concern to you? Well, I had been working um, in Meath as part of my PhD research. So I had been doing work on local government across Ireland and I had wanted kind of contrast and case studies and being from Donegal, Donegal was one case study. Uh, but County Meath was a really good kind of counter case study for that. Both counties with quite different regions within the county boundaries. So making a nice contrast, the West Coast, the East Coast, uh, very different landscapes, very different people, very different identities. So I was quite familiar with Meath by the point that we started um, and working on the volume. And I had also been involved 
uh, in a project called the GA Oral History Project and I'd been collecting oral histories in Meath as well prior to starting out the editorial ship. So I had I had a sense of the county from all of those interactions with the people and a familiarity with the county. And I suppose as a historical geographer, there aren't many of us in the country. And then to have had that experience working in Meath, it was a nice opportunity to bring that work together. And of course, I was also joined by a Meath man, Francis Ludlow, good friend and colleague in the editorship of the Meath History and Society volume. And uh, you commissioned a chapter from one William Nolan on the migration policy of the Irish Land Commission in Meath. We did, yes. How did that go? Very well. It's very <laughs> easy to edit, it turns out. <laughs> what, did, what Did he meet his deadline? He possibly met his deadline better than some of the editors who were also <laughs> contributors to the volume, I will say that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that's the, the Land Commission piece is a really key part of Meath's history and Woolley's expertise in the Land Commission is well known. So we were delighted that he was able to contribute mm. to the volume and, and have that piece within it. Arlene, like William, you are a geographer. And in fact, both of you are. Um, uh, William is a emeritus in the same department in UCD as, as your good self. So something like this, do you think it's important to bring a geographer's point of view to editing a volume like this? Oh, completely. I think that's the joy of the History and Society series is that it does take a broad approach to understand an county rather than perhaps a more narrow discipline specific approach. And the geography comes at it, you know, from the perspective of a landscape and trying to understand a landscape and a regional landscape. And Woolley has done great work in having the physical geography of the landscape represented within the volumes of the History and Society series. And we were keen to continue that tradition with the Meath History and Society volume. And it's so important because that physical landscape underpins the type of soils that the county has, the types of agriculture. Uh, and as a historical geographer, I spend a lot of time talking about how the types of agriculture practised in an area dictates in the culture, the settlement patterns, the traditions. And that's not to say it's the only factor. I'm not arguing for environmental determinism, but it's a really key factor at the same time in understanding the characteristics of places and regions. So I think that broad view and, and kind of underpinning that sense of what the county as a whole might look like at the start is really important then in understanding the wider context for the different historical periods and how things evolve one after the other over that period in time. And William, where do we stand now? How many volumes, how many counties have been covered? How many are left? Uh, we have 29 published and this year we hope to publish Louth working on at the moment and then after that Antrim is being worked on I think it's almost complete and Sligo will be the final volume that's been edited by Kieran O'Connor from University College Galway And the production values for the book are incredibly high, they are beautiful beautiful volumes, that must have become more prohibitively expensive over a period of time It is, the books and uh, the biggest problem of course in Ireland is is the scale of of the market. You haven't got a massive market for books like that. We began by doing say a thousand copies of every book in the beginning but now we're down to about 500 or so and we've been very fortunate really to get support from the various county councils and from the NUI. The NUI have supported every volume through its grants in A's of publication venture and that's been very important and we've got kind of funding not big funding, but funding when, you, when, you, when it's aggregated, it comes to nearly half the cost of the production for each volume. And luckily enough, we have dealt with the same company now in Dublin, Keystrokes. Uh, there are kind of, they do the digital typesetting 
and the origination of the, the, the illustrations and all of that. And I've worked with him now for about 30 years. And I did find these were people who were trained in the, in the they were apprentices in the whole printing business. And they're very skilled. They know exactly what they're doing. I don't have to tell them very much. They know exactly what they're doing. So we've been very lucky in that, in getting that support and having, and, and they're very interested. They're a small company based in um, Brunswick Street in Dublin. And I always say when we go to launches that this book has been conceived and uh, produced within, say, a six-mile radius in Dublin City, like between, between Temple Oak to Brunswick Street, and then Tom Duffy, another traditional Dublin binding firm out in the Ballybock. He does the actual uh, binding. And are you glad that you started it almost 40 years ago? Would you be able, I mean, if you were a much younger man, obviously, but would you be able to, do you think, start a series like this today? Would it work today? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, it would be very difficult, I think, to get, because people have become so very specialised that they're so focused on their own careers and what they're doing. And I would be, I've been very fortunate that people have been so generous. Some very good people, like, say, if I mentioned Louis Cullen, Willie Smith, Patrick Lenahan, you know, there are people who are very busy in producing their own works, but they've given me great essays and great works and people like Arlene, I should say, you know, in terms of, like, the first thing is to get a, a good editor. Now, sometimes the editor has to be from within the county. And I don't mind. And after that, you have to have some person from the county. Otherwise, the identity of the project is kind of questionable. And uh, we were looking in relation to Arlene was the editor for County Meath and then my, my son-in-law, Francis Ludlow, a giant, or he was from Drum Conrad in County Meath. So, you know, that justified there was a, a, a duel. And it's good to have someone from outside too. You, you, you always have a bit more objectivity. And Arling would be looking at it from a geographer's perspective as much as from a local's mm. perspective. So doubly objective, not a historian and not a person from Meath. But uh, Arling, I mean, obviously you learned a lot about the history of County Meath when you were editing. What did you learn about local history in general, do you think? Oh, we learned a lot. Um, I think the importance of place as geographers, uh, you know, myself and Francis always appreciated the importance of place but when you can see, I suppose, the wider context and it's important, I think, to say that while the History and Society series, you know, brings in local historians, we do take that kind of a regional view of the county as a whole. And that helps to contextualise place and helps to provide context for the local history work that's been done on the ground already. And we were really fortunate that some of the local historians within Meath kind of rallied to our call and were happy to share the work that they'd been doing and had been publishing in the local Meath or the Meath local history journal, Reignamia, that they were able to share that or to revamp that and, and revise it and share it with us. I think that that piece of it is really important as well. But it really highlights, I suppose, the differences across counties and from, you know, areas that are in quite close proximity to one another. And you begin to see that kind of characteristic of a place beginning to emerge through that work. Now, they're big volumes. Uh, there's a lot of material in them. If it were possible, if it were feasible to produce something that was half as big again or twice as big, are there areas that you would like to have included? Are there articles that you would have liked to included in your particular volume? Yeah, I think so. And certainly when myself and Francis sat down with Wally, we kind of talked about the scope of things that we would have liked to have included 
And, you know, the first, I suppose, eight chapters are the period before 1500 and every, the rest of the 34 chapters cover that period onwards. So maybe a little bit more of the early history would have been nice to have included. But I think the volumes are a snapshot in time as well. I mean, we were very conscious that we were constrained by who was working on Meath history and society and, and who we could actually ask to contribute and where their interests were. And if we were to go back today, I think there'd be a different profile based on new scholars that have come through or new areas of interest that have emerged in the intervening period. And I think that's it's one of the treasures of the County History and Society series that they capture the county at a moment in time as well. And is that something that concerns you finally, William, that the volumes might at some point uh, and perhaps even in the not too distant future be effectively out of date because uh, research has uncovered yeah. new material, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think the quality of the material will, will, will live on, you know, because they were written so wonderfully. There's some beautiful essays. I don't want to go into any of them in particular, but ones that, you know, that, that would strike you. I think they'll always have a resonance because the research work done I mean, the archival research work in the volumes is, is unbelievable, what people have done. Uh, for example, my, my another colleague in, in University College Galway, Arnold Horner, the Geography Department, he's published about six essays in the series on early cartography. Now, that will never date, and maybe not many people are going to engage with that in the future, but it's a very significant aspect of our history and our cartographic history and geography. But I suppose the one thing I'd like to say, uh, say in finishing up is to pay credit to all the local historical societies. Now, they're mainly historical and archaeological societies. They have a double dimension. I think they are, if you have a good, strong historical society in a county, it says a lot about the health of the county in a cultural sense. And as Ali was mentioned there, Riochnami was absolutely the meat historical society. And in County Louth, I've been so fortunate. The editor of the County Louth Historical Society volume for many years is a man called Noel Ross, and he died a couple of years ago. And Noel was absolutely unbelievable. And he trained a group of historians, geographers, archaeologists, people who contributed to the Lout Archaeological Society volume. And they wrote for our series now. And they're just word perfect. You have nothing to do with them, really, because it's the good training. Well, we look forward to seeing the, the Louth edition, the third last editions, and then uh, the other two thereafter. Uh, it's been it's a fantastic series. Absolutely wonderful series, beautiful production values, uh, beautifully produced and absolutely fascinating articles contained therein. William Nolan and uh, Dr Arlene Cramsey, many thanks for joining us on the History Show this evening to talk about the History and Society County Series published by Geography Publications. After the break, the story of the Irish silver miners buried in Leadville, Colorado and their fight for better pay and conditions in the late 19th century. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Now we're visiting the town of Leadville in the US state of Colorado. In the late 1870s, the discovery of silver high up in the Rocky Mountains near Leadville produced one of the largest silver rushes in American history. Within years, the area's population climbed from just a few hundred to 35,000. Among them, there were many Irishmen and their families seeking opportunity in the post-famine years. Life 
was short for many as they faced harsh winters, long working hours and grim working conditions. As we'll hear, they went on strike and took on the state government and a hostile media. More than 1,300 are buried at Leadville's Evergreen Cemetery in the pauper section in unmarked sunken graves. They're now commemorated at the cemetery as just yesterday the Leadville Irish Miners Memorial was unveiled. This memorial was created as a result of the research of Dr James Walsh. Earlier, I spoke to James Walsh, historian and professor in the Political Science Department of the University of Colorado in Denver. He spent 20 years studying Irish history in Leadville and is passionate about this overlooked chapter of Irish-American labour history. Um, okay, so just tell me first of all, where is Leadville? What is Leadville, or what was Leadville? Leadville is in the center of Colorado, in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. It's an old silver mining town. It was originally a gold camp, but in 1877, silver was discovered. It blew up into one of the largest silver booms in North American history. It's very high up as well, isn't it? It's the highest incorporated town in North America, 10,200 feet. How Irish was Leadville then in the, say, let's say the 1870s? Yeah, per capita, this is one of the most Irish places in North America. About a tenth of the population was born in Ireland, another tenth or so were Irish-American, and so that made it the most Irish place between, my estimate, the West Coast and the Midwest. This was an enormously important Irish cultural center, really. And the mines bore very Irish, some of them anyway, bore very Irish names. They did. The Robert Emmett, the O'Donovan Rasa, names like the Maid of Aaron, the Molly. I mean, maybe up to a quarter of the mines had Irish names. What were the conditions like in those mines? Pretty brutal. Uh, the, the shifts were 10 to 12 hours, six days a week. They were working at extreme altitude, and in the winters, the temperatures could go as much as 30 or 40 below zero. There's stories of miners sweating in the bowels of the mine, clothing completely drenched in sweat, and then emerging in the surface where it's 10 below, and by the time they, they got home, their clothing was frozen solid. So the conditions was something they never prepared for. They couldn't have prepared for. And adjusting to the altitude and not having adequate shelter, really. The housing was flimsy wooden shacks for the most part. No access to any real health care. There were epidemics that spread through the communities. And the Irish were the poorest of all the ethnic groups in the town. So they were vulnerable. And the cemetery shows that. And they were the poorest. Now, you know, in most parts of the American West, the Chinese would have been the poorest, but not in Leadville. No, the, Leadville had a, a ban on, on Chinese miners. That was from the very beginning of the, of the rush. Uh, there, there were a couple of Chinese miners who attempted to challenge the ban, and they were thrown out. Uh, one was killed. There was a place outside of Leadville called Pigtail Gulch, where uh, the body of a murdered Chinese man was thrown in, in, in the gulch, in the mine, actually. And I presume then that the miners also were not being paid a king's ransom. $3 a day, you know, that compared to coal miners, that, that was a good wage. But these miners were arguing that having to work at 10,000 feet in the conditions when they were dying young, they, they were deserving of a, of a higher wage. So 
this is not a, um, a situation of miners seeking their fortune in the Wild West. This was really corporatized mining. You, you, the only mining you were going to do was for a wage where someone else was making the money off of your labor. Who were the mine owners? I mean, in, in places like Butte, Montana, a lot the miners were a hell of a lot of Irish miners, but the mine owners were also Irish. Was that the case in Leadville? Not the case in Leadville. There were some fairly successful Irish Americans in Leadville that had worked their way up. But for the most part, these were mines owned by absentee owners who lived either in New York, the, the East Coast, or, or in England. And so the Irish were fighting these invisible financial forces. And they were visited. The miners of Leadville were visited at, at one point by Oscar Wilde. What in God's name was Oscar Wilde doing in Leadville? Well, not, not only Oscar Wilde, I mean, every prominent Irishman crossing the country stopped in Leadville. And that was because everyone knew that that was a place to go if you, if you wanted support for all things Irish. So Oscar Wilde gave a speech at the Tabor Opera House. The title was Aesthetics and the Ethics of Art, I believe. <laughs> the newspapers predicting that he would be thrown out of the town by the miners. But, but the miners quite, quite enjoyed him and took him to the bowels of the matchless mine, where legend has it he outdrank them. He said he had three-course meal at the bottom of the mine, the first course whiskey, the second whiskey, and the third whiskey. <laughs> and, and that's the legend. But what is clear is that he won over these miners. They, they didn't see him as some sort of threat. He, he found common ground there. And uh, Michael Davitt's another important figure who traveled to Leadville twice to, to raise funds for the land league. He considered Leadville one of the um, key fundraising destinations for the land league. And he, I'm sure while he was there, he was also talking to the union leaders, doing what he could to support them in their struggle. At some point in the late 1870s or around 1880, the miners have, have had enough and there, and there is a strike. Tell me about the, the leader of the strike or the man that they chose to become the leader of the strike. Yeah, this is one of the most little-known characters in Colorado history who everyone should know about. Michael Mooney, 28 years old, immigrated to the U.S. when he was about 19, made his way to the Leadville Silver Mines, met his wife there. In May of 1880, 5,000 miners walked out of the mines. They gathered on Fairview Hill and declared, Michael Mooney, you're our leader. He didn't ask to be the leader. They, they told him, and he was a natural leader. They put him on a horse the next day for a parade through Main Street. He said to the men, remain peaceful and remain sober. His message was, we're not going to get anything accomplished through violence. And we have to be very careful about how we present ourselves to the public. And the, the men followed Mooney. They, they believed in him. I call him a working-class intellectual in the sense that he had no formal education. But he had deep understanding of what we would today call political science, history. The speeches he gave were, were laced with, with philosophy. He understood economics. He was just a, a deep thinker. Irish immigrants like Mooney need to be held up to the light as a way to demonstrate that working-class Irish were just as much full of ideas and philosophy as, as the more privileged brothers and sisters. So Mooney was blacklisted after the strike, traveled all over the American West with his family, eventually had seven kids with his wife, and then made his way to Los Angeles around the turn of the century, and that's where he died around 1923. I think he died on St. Patrick's Day. The other thing I learned about Mooney is I would consider him what we would today call anti-racist. 
by that, what I mean is there's a couple of references that come up. One is when the miners gathered on Fairview Hill when the strike started, a reporter accompanied them there to record the, the speeches. And one of the miners said, three cheers for Dennis Carney. Dennis Carney was a, an Irishman on, on the West Coast who stirred up anti-Chinese sentiment and gained a lot of notoriety for that through the, the California Working Men's Party. When Mooney heard that miner say three cheers for Dennis Carney, he shut it down. He said that Dennis Carney will do his thing, we'll do ours. And I think what he was really saying to those miners is, is that that's not who we are. That's the battle we're fighting against. We're not going to pile on the Chinese. So I, I do consider um, Mooney a person who was way ahead of his time, a representative of working, a working class intellectualism that is often not highlighted because there's so few written accounts. The vast majority of these miners were illiterate, and the vast majority of the, the kinds of desperately poor working-class Irish immigrants at that time didn't have writing skills, so we don't have those accounts. What we do have, though, are the transcriptions of Mooney's speeches that were documented in Leadville's newspapers, and they give us these hints and clues. I believe there's hundreds of Moonies behind that that we've never heard of. What was the response then of the mine owners and the authorities who, one assumes, were supportive of the mine owners? <laughs> yeah, the Leadville's business community panicked. The silver mines of Leadville were the foundation for the entire economy of Colorado at that time. They knew there was no real threat here. They, they knew that these miners weren't, weren't going to do damage to anything. They weren't threatening anyone. But they used their leverage and convinced the governor that this was a, an insurrection. This was a, an uprising. And the Denver Post printed the headline, the Molly Maguires have taken control of the state. So the governor caved into that pressure and sent the National Guard, declared martial law, sent the National Guard to Leadville. And their orders were to arrest the strikers under vagrancy laws and force them to build roads and chain gangs. So the, the men were facing a very difficult decision they couldn't win. They, they knew they couldn't win. The strike ended after three weeks. Whether that strike was a victory or, or not, I think it's, it's an important moment because it shows this important culture of organizing and resistance with an element of just a desire for respectability among the Irish. They're, they're not saying, we're going to burn this town down if we're not you know, shown respect. They're saying, look what we've done you know, haven't we earned this already? And, and, and we're, look how we're carrying ourselves. They're, they're constantly fighting against the, car the simian caricatures as if they're haunted by those. <laughs> they have to counter them in any, ch any chance they get. I know this is a very personal story to you. I know you're a huge admirer. of It, 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 has, it has come across of, of Michael Mooney. But it became even more personal when you visited Leadville and you were asked to go and have a look at the, the cemetery. But something happened while you were there. Tell us about that. A friend, this was around 2003, wanted to show me at Evergreen Cemetery. So I thought we were going to look at headstones. So I was, all right, great, let's, let's go. Well, my friend had spent most of her life in Leadville. She somehow knew that I needed to see this place. So she walked me through the headstones, the, the regular part of the cemetery, to the back where there was a pauper cemetery. I didn't even see the graves. I, th I thought we had just left the cemetery. We were, we were in a forest, a pine forest. And then I, I couldn't believe my eyes when I looked down and realized that all the 
furrows and the holes surrounding me were graves and they stretched as far as I could see in every direction. And then it, it washed over me that these are the people I've been researching for years. And that's one of the most poignant moments in my life because I knew in that, in that moment, I knew that, oh, okay, this is why I'm here. This is, this is my job. This is my responsibility. I'm going to do what I can with my life to, to bring these voices forth. You know, it was a perfect time in my life, Miles, to be brought to that pauper cemetery because my uncle and I were researching my own genealogy, our genealogy together at the time. My father didn't know anything, so nothing was passed down. This is before the Internet was, was the way you did genealogy. This, we had to go to county courthouses and church basements. And so what we learned is a history of death and injury through industrial accidents. My great-great-grandmother was killed in an industrial fire in Pittsburgh. Two of my great-great-grandparents were killed by trains, and one had a brother who was killed by a train, and my great-grandfather was a brakeman on the train. He was thrown off and injured his foot. So one after the other after the other, these industrial accidents and dying young, and on and on and on. So that was in my consciousness, and I was trying to understand how, how, that, how that led to who I am, and so standing in that cemetery and looking at those sunken graves, I realized that this was what I'd been led to. So I don't know, make of that what you will, whether you believe in destiny or not. I'm not sure where I stand, <laughs> but certainly that was not a place I went to. That was a place that chose me. I didn't choose it. It chose me. One of the saddest things, though, about that graveyard, I mean, you, you, you talk about possibly hundreds who would have died in industrial accidents. But one of the saddest things that you point out about that graveyard is the number of children who were buried there. That's right. Well, there's a couple of thousand in the Catholic section. The average age is 22. Something around 45% are, are five or younger. Nearly half of them are babies and stillborn. And that's a sobering experience. To see the, the, the short graves and to see the numbers and to realize... So those were a result of epidemics. Those were a result of inadequate housing, the brutal winters. A lot of women died in childbirth. We're still learning. That cemetery continues to speak to us. My, my, I have a team of students right now researching every single grave through the records, trying to understand the lives of the people buried there. And we're learning quite a bit. For women, for example, there, there's, a, there's a couple of hundred women buried there. The number one cause of death was violence. So there's not natural causes. And violence means accidents like fires, domestic violence, suicide. So it's a very sobering space. I think it does reshape and challenge the dominant narrative about the Irish in the West. That narrative being that the further west the Irish went, the easier life became. You think that's a myth? I think it's at least a partial myth. I, I, I don't want to completely challenge that because there's some truth to that. I mean, you look at San Francisco, there, there's examples of that, that. There's probably data that one could collect that would support that. But what I'm saying is that there are social milieus that have been ignored, and those are the working class milieu. That means how many hundreds of Irishmen are buried in remote areas of the Rocky Mountain West and the Great Plains along railroad tracks that they worked and built? How many... Irishmen are buried in remote mining camps throughout the Rocky Mountain region in California. The numbers must be in the 
thousands, maybe even in the, in the tens of thousands. So that narrative has to include that. We're all subject to an inherent classism in the way we look at the Irish American narrative, and we have to fix that. We have to deal with that. The move to build a memorial to commemorate the dead of the cemetery, it was important to you, I think, because you're one of the prime movers. It was important to you that this be very, very inclusive as a memorial. Yeah, I, I hold Irish Americans to a high bar. <laughs> I think any people that have, whose ancestors were colonized and exiled and occupied and their language was taken, that they should be first in line, first in line when it comes to standing in solidarity with others who face the same. So what to me that means, if we're going to build a memorial on what was once indigenous land, we have to recognize that this was once indigenous land and honor the, the descendants of the people who were displaced. So in this case, that means the Southern Ute Nation. I've built a partnership with the cultural director there, and she actually came out and blessed the ground. It was very moving. I mean, the audience of about 150 people were in tears because she was comparing the Irish story and the Ute story. She said, you're from strong people. I descend from strong people. We all descend from strong people. So that's important. The other relationship that we're, we're trying to build is with today's current immigrant community in Leadville. It's a very large community from northern Mexico, 40% of Leadville. And they're segregated to the outskirts of town and trailer parks. They work the service jobs in the, in the wealthy ski resorts. So Vail and Aspen and Breckenridge. All the service workers live in Leadville. Not all, but many live in Leadville because it's the only affordable place in that region. And they and they commute an hour to go work in the in the restaurants, in the hotels, in the ski lifts. And so, honoring that community who faced some of the same xenophobia that the Irish faced, you know, in the 19th century, is a way that we can say, yeah, this memorial honors the dead. To quote Mother Jones, Miles, pray for the dead, but fight, fight like, like hell, hell for the living. living. <laughs> and that, that's what I'd like this memorial to be, is a reminder to Irish Americans. Yeah, we need to pray for the dead, but by God, let's fight like hell for the living. You actually managed to track down the granddaughter of Michael Mooney because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's been a huge, a huge project for you. But she didn't know anything about this story. What does that tell you about about memory, about Irish-American memory, about working-class Irish-American memory? <laughs> That's such an important question. So I, I gave a talk at a genealogy society, and, and I, I made a joke, oh, one day I'll, I'll make contact with Mooney's grandchildren. So a woman approached me, and she said, I'll find them. So two days later, she emailed me a name and number. Marilyn Mooney lived in Southern California in her early 90s. And she and I had several phone conversations and just a wonderful woman. And my, my question I approached her with, and I, I was fairly certain that, that I knew the answer already, is do the descendants know the story of, of the strike and of the leader Mooney was and what he did? And my suspicion was no. And that was confirmed. The family only knew he was a minor, and that's where it ended. They knew nothing, nothing. And this is only two generations. You know, this was the granddaughter. You would think that, Surely she would have overheard her parents saying something, but knew nothing. So I, I sent them my manuscript and much of my writing 
the past year has been very busy for me, so we I haven't been in touch. I keep thinking to call Marilyn, but I just learned from that genealogist. She sent me her obituary, so she's now passed. So I'm hoping to to build relationships with the next generation, which would be around my age. Let's hope that happens. Were you surprised that she didn't know this this history? I mean, you would expect that there would have been great pride in what Michael Mooney at least tried to achieve. He didn't succeed, but at least he tried, and he tried hard back in 1880. Yeah, I, I think this cuts to the heart of who is Irish America. Irish Americans have scratched and clawed their way to a, a place today where the vast majority of Irish Americans are very comfortable and educated. But that struggle hasn't been passed down. It hasn't it's been lost, I believe. I think this memorial is a reminder more than it is a memorial. You know, what Mooney faced was a shaming and ostracism, made to feel like a second-class citizen. His quote, I mean, I would have the whole American flag, but, but by God, I have a corner of it. I think that, that speaks to the struggle. So he didn't want his children, his grandchildren, to also feel like second-class citizens. So just by, by not passing those stories down, they, they never felt that and somehow I think that is inherent to the Irish American story that first generation had to be radical they were desperate (laughs) there was no other choice (laughs) subsequent generations didn't have to be radical because they had the status quo behind them so I think that reaching back and reclaiming that history is one way that Irish Americans can reclaim a, a piece of themselves and also better understand their history. And so for this memorial, I see it as having two prominent symbols. One is, for Irish Americans, a visible, visual reminder of the, the toll of, the human toll of industrial labor. Digging the canals, building the railroads, working the mines. How many died? We, we need to know that, you know. We, we need to face that, you know. And I think for people in Ireland, it's a reclaiming of the lost. I've never met an Irish family that doesn't have a lost ancestor <laughs> who drifted west and no one ever heard from them. So that, that's what's happened is we originally thought this, oh, we're just going to honor these 1,300 people. But it's become so much more. Now the memorial is a memorial to all the lost Irish. And people are going there even though they don't have ancestors. They're just to feel that energy. And so I, I think it's a... It's the memorial has become and is becoming a sacred Irish American space in a region that's long been neglected. And that was Jim Walsh of the University of Colorado, Denver, on the Irish immigrant laborers and their families buried in Leadville Evergreen Cemetery, who are now commemorated with a memorial unveiled yesterday. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye, and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.